Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. What's going on, Bridge Church? Yes. Yeah, we can do better than that. What's going on, Bridge Church? Yeah, I like that. I like that. Man, if you missed last week's seven-year anniversary, you should go and run the tape back, uh, or however you listen or watch, because it was a really dynamic experience. We actually had testimonies, testimony service. Some of y'all know about testimony service, and we had that. And the worship was so good, we even had some animals come in to kind of peep in on what was happening in here. So uh, if you don't know, just ask the six o'clock or, or keep it moving. Um, but we are returning back to our series on Esther, and oh, it's, it's just uh, been so, so good and fulfilling to see even study this deeper and kind of just unpack all the riches of what God is trying to teach us. And so we're going to continue on in that story. Last time uh, we spoke about, when we went through the beginning, the first half of, of Esther chapter 2, where she became queen. And in the broader context, if you are, are new to the series or new to this book, is that Esther is, is a Jewish young woman who finds herself like the other Jews at the time, this is in the 5th century B.C., exiles, uh, essentially taken from their homeland uh, about 100 years before and carried off first to Babylon and then ultimately to Persia, who then took over Babylon. And so she's in Persia now, specifically in the city of Susa. And the Jews find themselves in a position where all of a sudden they're no longer in Jerusalem where there was a temple that was built uh, to worship God, uh, their, their legal system, essentially their, their whole system of government was, was, was revealed by God, and not, that was all gone. And now they found themselves as exiles living in a strange land among people who worshiped strange gods and did uh, injustice toward them as, as an oppressed and marginalized people, as well as the rest of the world. And they are struggling with that. And so today, and particularly in chapter 3, we're going to look at injustice and God's perspective on it. And here's, here's the key takeaway, just going to give it to you up front and we'll just unpack, is that God remembers injustice and works through us to end it. God remembers injustice and works through us to end it, but we must see our reality through new eyes in order to see what God is up to. Now, this, this chapter, in chapter 3 in particular, is pretty fascinating for me in light of responding sometimes to people who say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about social justice. Like, you know, why are we talking about it in church? And, 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 and all the things that if you really lead, uh, that led up to chapter 3, when we looked in chapter 1, we saw the, um, the king decide he's just going to get rid of his queen because she didn't want to stoop to the level of his exploitation of her. In chapter 2, we see human trafficking afoot. And now we get to chapter 3. And this is so relevant today because we live in a time of great injustices. Just this week, many of you probably saw uh, just the Ahmad Arbery case uh, when he was hunted down and killed 
in Georgia. And the uh, defense lawyer in that case uh, took issue with the fact that a black pastor was there to support the family. Or you might have noticed that even though the population in that county, of Gwynn County, is 26% African-American, there's only one black juror. Or maybe you were paying attention to the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Young man that traveled illegally with a gun over state lines and killed three people at a Jacob Blake protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And wonder... What are we supposed to make of these things? And the list just could go on and on and on of the things that we see in the headlines. And some even wonder, where's God? In the midst of these crises, in the midst of these this unrest that we see around us of these injustices. And, and, and the thing about it, even there was Jeremiah. Jeremiah was, uh, he's known as the weeping prophet. He was the prophet who, uh, whose ministry took place when God revealed that he was going to send the people into Babylon because of their own injustice. And as, as, as Jeremiah was first trying to warn the people and then trying to prepare them for the reality of what was about to befall them, listen to his words in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. He, he says, you are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet, I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You ever felt that? You ever felt Jeremiah's question? He's, he's wrestling with this because it just seems in his day as, as Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the temple and, and carted the people off into slavery. He's like, why does it seem like the wicked are prospering? Where are you, God, in the midst of injustice? This is not a new question. It's a question that even when that God spoke to, audibly wrestled with. And so when we sing that song, there's, you know, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Sometimes it grates up against what we see with our own eyes around us. And go, How do we make sense of all that? And in Esther and in this book, it's, it's designed to, to, to kind of help us along the way to, to speak to us in the midst of that confusion And that's why it's significant that Esther is the only book in the Bible that God's name isn't explicitly mentioned. Because sometimes that sense of silence is what we get, and we we wrestle with that. And, And here's the fascinating thing, that even though God is not clearly, is not explicitly mentioned, we see through Esther that God remembers injustice, and he works so that equips us to confront it. So we're going to look at two basic things. Today, the first is how systemic injustice works, and then the second is how God responds. How in- systemic injustice works, and how God responds. Now, the fascinating thing, and we just kind of went through it a little bit, that one of the key players, so to speak, in this uh, book is King Ahasuerus, although otherwise known as King Xerxes, who is operating in king over the most powerful empire that the world to this point had ever seen, ruling from as far away as India to Ethiopia. That was the length and size of the kingdom and everything in between. And yet for all of his power and all of his uh, expertise and military might, we see that he's easily manipulated. In chapter one, his advisors say, yo, you're going to let the queen talk to you like that? You're going to have to banish her. 
And then in chapter 2, they also come up with the idea of the beauty pageant slash human trafficking ring. And now we're going to see another chapter in chapter 3, what happens. Now, this takes place about five years after Esther uh, takes the throne. And we're going to start at the end of chapter 2 because there's an important context here. It's verse 21. And it says, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, were guarding, were guarded the threshold, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. These two eunuchs became angry at him. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now we're in chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So we see first in the beginning in that in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 2 that there is a conspiracy, an assassination attempt on King Ahasuerus' life by two people who are in the kingdom who are also have access to him. See, when it mentions that they are uh, at the threshold or guarded the threshold, or some of your translations might say the gate, there was an entire complex that don't just think like a metal fence. This was essentially the, the entry point to the entire city, and this was also where the palace was. And so these two men had direct access to the king, and they had planned to, to, to assassinate him, but Mordecai happens to be at the right place at the right time, hears of the story, reports it to Queen Esther, who people don't realize that they're related, who then reports it to the king. It's, you know, found out, the plot is found to be true, the plot is foiled, and they are executed. And then this strange thing happens in verse 1 through 3. In spite of the fact that it was Mordecai who overheard the plot and revealed it, in spite of the in spite of the fact that Esther makes that clear, the king ends up honoring somebody else. Haman gets promoted to the highest level. It's like, well, wait, where does he come into the play? And some of y'all can be feeling that because that happened to you at work. Like, wait a minute, I did all the work. Like, I, I, I revealed the, the problem that if we hadn't revealed this, this snag in the budget or this, this, this problem in the plans that we would have been sank, and then somebody else gets the promotion. And it's like, what's going on? And so this posture of indifference toward Mordecai uh, reveals a certain type of way that especially um, if you are a person who is not in a, that's in a marginalized group, that you can experience this being overlooked. Often. Overlooking the contributions of a group is the first step towards systemic injustice. Let me, let me explain it to you how it works. Do you realize that Carter G. Woodson, is, when he started Negro History Week, which was the precedent for Black History Month, that at the time, the only, in the textbooks, the only thing that talked about the experience of African Americans was from slavery. It was as if they had no prior history in America prior to slavery. That was the way the history books taught it. 
And there were no positive contributions that were ever mentioned about the group. And this is a key component to developing a mythology of saying this is why it's okay that they are in this situation and why we're up here. But this is not just something that happened 100 years ago when Carter G. Wilson started Black History Month. If we go fast forward, we can see it in fashion. Some of the ladies know what I'm talking about. You ever notice how like stuff that started in the black community becomes all of a sudden popular? Like, like all of a sudden cornrows become box braids? And it's like, we was talking about that. Like, we were doing this for, like, literally generations, and now all of a sudden you're acting like it's something new. Bantu knots become space buns. It's like, how, how did this happen? Like, and then people act like they just discovered it. Like a country that they just discovered. Just a continent that was there, that people live in there, but they just... <laughs> we just discovered it. <laughs> But this isn't new, and, and in fact, even when we look at the mythology around, it's probably no more iconic feature, uh, person in American lore than the cowboy. You know, the, the, the hat, the cowboy hat, the, the six shooters, and, and I remember discovering that, you know, cowboys, actually, that started because of black people wearing the cattle hands. Like, they would say, go get the cowboy. Like, literally, the name... <laughs> reveals who it was being referred to, who were the ones that had revealed how to do it. But ironically, you had to take something like The Lone Ranger, which is a show uh, started in the 1930s, and you know, then it went into black and white TV shows. Uh, there was a, a, a movie that came out a few years ago, Army Hammer and uh, Johnny Depp, not worth seeing. But in any case, <laughs> The Lone Ranger. And The Lone Ranger was this figure of crime fighting, almost like a superhero, and he had his trusty sidekick, Tonto, which uh, this Native American who was essential to what he did because as he was in the West, he would communicate with Native American tribes. And don't you realize, there was actually, this was based on a real person. The problem was he's a black man. <laughs> Dude's name was Base Reeves. He was born into slavery, escaped he escaped into Native American territory in Oklahoma, which is how he learned the ways and the languages of the different tribes there. And he actually was arrested more than 3,000 people, including killing four, 14 outlaws without a single gun wound. He was the original Lone Ranger. <laughs> but then the remix happens, and all of a sudden, they need to get two to replace one dude. <laughs> And, it's, and the story is going. So, how, so the first step is a posture that overlooks certain people. So then we can justify what we do next. Y'all with me there so far? That's, that's the first step. That's how it works. Because you got to get this a mythology that justifies exploiting. And it's the same thing that happens, especially in Esther, with women. All of a sudden, you be in a meeting and you make a suggestion and everybody just kind of move on. And then the guy makes the same suggestion and then everybody's like, that's a great idea. Wow. And so you overlook a group's contributions. But that's, that, that's just the first part. If we go, go on the second part of verse 2 and then going into verse 3, look, it says, but after Haman is appointed, it says, but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, who are you violating the king's command? They're like, what you doing, Mordecai? Why aren't you bowing to Mordecai? I mean, to Haman. Then now, it was when they had spoken to him, spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman, snitches, 
to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. He's like, look, I'm not bowing before nobody but God, so I'll do what y'all want. And then look what happens next. It says, when Haman saw, so he had to come and check it out himself. (laughs) And Mordecai's like, I'm still not bowing. When This is wild. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he considered it beneath his dignity to kill Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. So Haman sought to annihilate all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were found throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus. So the way that systemic injustice works is it goes from a posture of overlooking to personal and overt animosity. Haman's name literally means wrath. It sounds like the Hebrew word for wrath. And he, now see, this is why sometimes those, those genealogies and the, all the ites that you see in the Old Testament and you want to skip over, this is why it's important not to do that. Because when it says that Haman was an Agagite, you have to, you have to do a little bit of background to understand why that's significant in the story. Because you see, King Agag was one of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites had the dubious distinction of being the first people of the world to attack God's people when he drew them, took them out of Egypt. They, they, they heard the plan of God, because everybody got, the word was out. That you, you, you learn this from Rahab, you know, when the spies were there, like, look, we all heard about, I mean, look, when 12, 10 plagues happen and a whole 2 million people come out of a country, the word kind of gets out. <laughs> you know what I mean? A Red Sea party, y'all. Like, you know, that was trending number one on Twitter for a while there, probably. And so the story is out, and now people have a, so a, a decision, they could respond like Rahab, who says, look, your God is clearly God, so I'm team God, like, <laughs> get me into the situation, or resistance to say, nah, we ain't, that, that might have been Egypt, but that ain't us. Well, the Amalekites chose resistance, and there's a key spiritual warfare component to this, because you see, God had said that he was going to bless the Jews, and so now Satan wants to do the exact opposite of what God did, and that's the same thing in our life. Soon as you get to the point where God is like, I'm going to bless, oh, you in relationship with me, you're changing your life around, all of a sudden it comes, all this spiritual opposition just seems to come out of nowhere. That's, there's a reason for that. Check this, this is centuries later, centuries later, after all of that drama in the, the book of Exodus happens, and soon as Haman hears the story, he immediately is like, that's it. I'm going after all of them. But there's something that happens in between Moses and this point that makes, the, makes it even more pointed. And it's in um, about a few hundred years before in the book of Samuel. This is what we see. We see in 1 Samuel 15, Saul was the first king of Israel. First king. And Samuel is the prophet that God appoints to that king. And and, and God always speaks to the prophets to get to the king. And this is what Samuel says to Saul. He said, the Lord sent me to anoint you over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill, like wipe them out. Like, like that's it. And so what happens is Saul, and this is the very legendary moment in Saul's entire reign and rule, 
is he defeats the Amalekites, but instead of doing what God said, it was, you know, just kill, like offering the, the animals up to God as a sacrifice and killing the king, he decides to keep the king around to use his political bait and power. He decides to keep the, the animals so they can, which was basically money at that point in their time. And as a result of that, God is upset and angry with him, and that's how David ends up becoming king. Because he says, look, I desire obedience rather than sacrifice. Check this out. Saul was, his father's name was Kish, and he was of the tribe of Benjamin. We read in chapter 2 of Esther that Mordecai, his grandfather's name was Kish, and he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He is a direct descendant from Saul, and Haman is a direct descendant of Agag. Beef. Centuries, centuries of beef. And Haman takes this personal and historic conflict and fuels it to make hatred and then makes it an overgeneralization. So now all of a sudden, the issue that he had with Mordecai, he says, you know what? I'm going to use this to wipe out all of them. I'm going to finish what my ancestors started. And the reality is, again, if we look in our own time, we see these overgeneralizations happen all the time. So it's, it, it, you ever wondered, like, so, like, in, for example, after the Civil War, it was a key moment in our nation's history. It was like, okay, this is, a, like, a, an opportunity for a reset button. But politics trumped tr justice, once again, and the era of Reconstruction ended, which is then caused all the people who were the descendants of the defeated Confederates to now reassert what they thought that their fathers had lost. So they formed the Ku Klux Klan to reestablish a social order, a racist social order that had been lost during, after the Civil War. And then they changed the narrative, right? So remember the first point where you got to overlook the, the, the contributions. So now the narrative was always like, well, this was never about slavery. This was about states' rights. And they changed the story, but these personal hostilities, trying to finish the work of ancestors, is what caused everything that happened after. But the reality is this works on both ends, too. Because if we're not careful, the, the children and the descendants of those who have been oppressed can also take up hostilities and vengeance and hatred. You know, there was a, uh, you know, a, a, one of the most powerful books in my life was actually the autobiography of Malcolm X. Powerful book. Incredible story. But one of the things that I just couldn't get with was like this idea that, you know, the Nation of Islam taught that eventually Malcolm got away from, but at the time was like that white people were the devil, right? Like, and, and, and when he, and, and the reason how he got to this outlandish statement was because he went and looked at all of his personal experiences and that they were negative. His dad was killed by Klan members, you know, for trying to, you know, do justice in, among the black community. He had awful, awful experiences. But what overgeneralization causes you to do is to take that example and then overextend it to everyone. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing regardless of where you are and what your experiences have been. So step two is past resentments turn into personal hate. Past resentments turn into personal hate. That's how systemic injustice is worse. But there's more. I'm going to keep going. It says, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, pure. That is, they cast lots. That's what pure is. Before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month till the 12th month. 
which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every people. And they do not keep the king's law so that it is not to, kings, to the king's profit to tolerate them. Now, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. The king hands over this power so that Haman, his right-hand man, can commit genocide. Now, this thing of Casting lots, it literally means like rolling dice, like throwing dice, right? And now it's not like throwing dice in the gambling sense. This was in an ancient way. This was a way of divination. This was a way of discerning and, 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 and trying to understand the will of, the God, of God in the case of Israel because they cast lots or gods when it related to other people who were seeking this information and this insight out about the, what was true in the spiritual world to apply it to their own lives, so they kept doing this day after day to see when Haman should go before the king and ask him to do this annihilation. They were looking for the right sign. They were seeing when the, the stars aligned. They were checking the chakras to see if they were in the right place. They were looking at their horoscopes to understand the divine at times. And here's the reality. And this principle is true whether you're doing this by casting lots or you're doing this by some other means. Beware, because this is not a game, because you're tapping into spiritual darkness sometimes and you don't even realize it. Cause, cause, let me put it this way. The interesting thing about the Scripture is it doesn't say that these things aren't, like, don't have any base in some type of spiritual reality. It just says it's dangerous. Like, anytime that there's a door... Not only people look, are so excited about what they can see through the door, but they don't realize stuff is coming in the door into your life. That door goes both ways. And so Haman ends up, by way of this casting lot, ends up becoming a tool with which he is serving Satan's plan to annihilate the Jewish people in the hope of a Messiah. But he's just doing it for a petty revenge. You see, some people don't realize this is not a game. You think, oh, this is Halloween. Let's just, like, play with the Ouija board. Look. <laughs> but, but there's a few things here I want to bring out. Notice how power turns pre prejudice into policy. And, and the way it works is a few ways. One, Haman carefully avoids mentioning that these people are Jewish people. He says, there's a certain people in a certain place, and they're doing this certain thing. And we have to be careful because oftentimes there, people will use race-neutral language to accomplish racist agendas. Wait, wait, just hold on to that for a second. We're going to come back to that. The other thing that Haman uses is he turns prejudice into policy through the profit motive. 
You see, Haman appeals to the king's need to replenish his treasury depleted after a disastrous war with Greece. Some of y'all remember that. If you, you know, the movie 300 depicts this. He had just lost a great war that squandered a lot of his resources, and he was in need of money. And Haman says, look, if you allow us to wipe these people out, we will plunder them, take all of their possessions, and add it into your king's treasury. And so the two of those things together... The profit motive, somebody always benefits when there's systemic injustice. There's a reason why you see check cash in places in the hood, but you see banks in the suburbs. Somebody benefits when you charge somebody 10%, 20% to pay, cash a paycheck versus somebody else getting that for nothing. When the, when the housing crisis, it was a crisis for those who were poor, but for those who were rich, they got rich, richer. Because the banks were exploiting and using predatory lending in order to attack the hood. There's a reason for this. And so there, there, there's this initiative, there's this prejudice into policy has a profit motive. And we see this still today. There's a, a, a well-known, uh, so after the um, civil rights movement or during the civil rights movement, when it undid a lot of the laws put in place by the, the backlash to civil war and reconstruction, there was something called the Southern Strategy that emerged. The Southern Strategy was explained by Lee Atwater, who was a, um, he was a, basically an advisor. He was a Haman to various Republican presidents, such as uh, Ronald Reagan, Bush. And, but the Southern Strategy existed from the time of Nixon. And, and this is what, and there's some language here, so brace yourself, but, but this, is, this is a direct quote from Lee Atwater about what the Southern strategy was. It was basically, how do we respond to the civil rights movement and the gains from what that was trying to undo this, this, this kind of racial hierarchy? He says, y'all, don't quote me on this. You start out in 1954 by saying, nigger, nigger, nigger. Publicly, this is like talking about politicians. By 1968, you can't say nigger, that hurts you. Backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. You're getting so abstract now that you're, t you're talking about cutting taxes. And all these things that you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. Because obviously sitting around saying we want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing and a hell of a lot more abstract than nigger, nigger. That playbook right there. It says, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to use race-neutral language to accomplish a, a, and, and give a nod and a wink. It's called dog whistle politics to let some people know we're still for you. We're still going to kind of continue to support this racial hierarchy, but we're just going to do it in a quiet way. That's how... Systemic race uh, injustice works. It power, power turns into privilege, turns privilege into and, and prejudice into policy. What well, is one other step here? Last one. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. 
Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now, you have to know a couple of things. Persian law was irrevocable. Once the king put his signet ring on it, which is why they keep emphasizing that, that was the seal that says this cannot be undone. And so this gets sent out to the entire kingdom that this is on this day, on the, on, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, it's about to go down. You kill and then you can get whatever you get. All the prophets come to you. Now, imagine hearing that. Now, here's, here's the fascinating demonic <laughs> move in the Mississippi. And again, 13th day of the first month. You know what? The day that this gets announced is Passover Eve. Passover is the biggest to this day, a holiday in the Jewish calendar. It's the day that where they commemorate how God miraculously rescued them from Egypt in bondage through the death angel passing over their door from the blood of the lamb that they sacrificed. And the death angel would pass through the door and while, and then they, that allowed them to escape. And they get this announcement and it's like Haman is just turning the knife to say, oh yeah, y'all thought y'all were delivered. In Egypt, well, this, guess what? That story ends today. Lastly, this fourth step of how systemic injustice works is policy is enforced as local practice. It was see a policy by itself is just a just a law, it's just a rule that it's not. It doesn't get feet to it until there's like local practice. And, and, and so what Haman kind of cleverly does is he makes it. A, a profit incentive for everybody. So think about this. Your neighbor, you're a Jew, and your neighbor gets the, y'all you, you, you get the announcement. It's like, yo, you can kill your neighbor and take everything that they own. In fact, the king is encouraging it. What that might do. And that's why the city was thrown into confusion. There's an important difference, though, between exodus and exile. In exile, they're there because they broke the covenant with God. In, in Exodus, they hadn't even made a covenant yet. They don't make the covenant until after they escape certain death. And so part of the question that is here is, could they still expect to God to be faithful to his covenant promises when they had failed to keep their promises? So whereas before, it was like, oh, you know, well, God still got us. It's like, well, wow, we're only in this situation because we kept breaking God's laws. And so is it still on? Is he still going to rescue us? That's what is part of the tension of how this would have been felt in the moment. And we still see how local practice continues to try to change history and try to continue to keep this form of a caste system in place. We see this. Anybody heard of the term critical race theory recently? All of a sudden, this, the country gets whipped up in a frenzy after George Floyd's murder sparks the biggest movement of change. All of a sudden, even the NFL is apologizing and being like, yo, we need to be about like, Black Lives Matter. And like, the same people that was 
threw Colin Kaepernick out for kneeling, right? Like, that's how radical of a shift happened in 2020. And now, all of a sudden, out of the blue, this obscure legal theory is supposed to be threatening the lives of suburban children everywhere and causing them to feel like, you know, they're going to make them hate themselves. No, this is putting local policy in place to keep and instill this sense of fear and hatred that was already there. I wrote a few essays about it. You can check it out if you don't know what I'm talking about. Just Google it. I ain't got time to keep going into it. But it's the same idea, right? And so the nation is thrown into confusion. And you notice it says, and they just sit back and take a drink. They just drink a beer. Like, yo, we chilling. Because they don't care. But they enjoy the division. And, 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 and that sense of division between people is part of what is the enemy's plan. But you know what's a trip throughout this too? Is that both Haman and Mordecai are part of oppressed people group. Like, like Agagites are not Persians. <laughs> like, you know, like they, they are, they've been taken over too. And yet somehow, instead of seeing a common threat and a common enemy, what Haman does is he points himself to Mordecai. And this has been a long and, 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 and arduous a, a, a pattern that we see among those in power. And so just a, one last quote. Lyndon Johnson, who was a Democratic president who came after um, uh, Kennedy, said this around the same period. Now, this is the man who signed the civil rights legislation into law. He says, if you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. This is public record. So, so, so here's, he's like picking, like peep game. What he's saying is, if we can just keep them to keep hating each other, no one will notice that we're robbing them all blind. Nobody will notice. All right, well, with the time we have left, how does God respond to this? How does God respond to injustice? Well, we see one is providentially. Hey, did you notice that, and well, we haven't gotten there yet. If you, I would just encourage you to keep reading the book of Esther, we, I'll just give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. I mean, it's a few thousand years old, so if you had not seen it by now, it's fine. But the fact that the king neglects to honor Haman when he immediately creates an opening for when he finally discovers his omission, it creates a situation where then Mordecai can expose what was done. The fact that the king did not honor Mordecai when he was supposed to, actually is part of the strategy that God uses to save the people. So there's, don't despair when you find that someone is, you've been overlooked and your work has been overlooked because God can still superintend that and create right in the right timing the situation that you've been waiting for. And that's why no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Even the date. So Satan tries to use the Passover date to try to intimidate them. But God is like, yo, I'm still passing over all the evil and all the death that's coming to you. Because this weapon will not prosper. And that same thing is true today. We are the answers to our ancestors' prayers. We, there, there was a plot that should have snuffed out all of us. And yet, but God. And I say all of us because even if you're not necessarily the descendant of an African slave, there's still a plot from enemy Satan to wipe you out so that you never should have been here. And you know your family's backstory. And if you don't, look it up. You'll see scenarios. I know in my case, the doctors told my mom to abort me. 
And she sensed, she said, no, God has something for this child in me. And I'm only here because there was a, dis, a perspective that was greater than what she was told. How God responds. Do you realize that if Haman's plot would have succeeded, there would have been no Messiah, not only to save the Jewish people, but all of us. Jesus's ancestors, his great-grandparents, were in the Persian exile, which meant that God's foiling of that plot not only created a situation where Mordecai and Esther could rejoice, but everybody to follow. And last I checked, that includes all of us. But check this, but, but, but this was even part of the crisis of, wait, but Jesus survived all that, but then he gets nailed to a cross. Failure again. And I love how Karen Job, the commentator on the book of Esther, puts it. Look at this. She says, it was not in spite of the greatest injustice and most concerted evil that Jesus, uh, against Jesus, that God achieved his work of atonement, but through these very acts of injustice and evil. What a mind-boggling mystery. She said, look, God didn't like somehow just maneuver outside of a situation that he didn't see coming and, and Satan deciding to get the people to crucify Jesus. He says, no, actually, I, no weapon formed against you shall prosper that even in the midst of the crucifixion, there's going to be a resurrection that saves the entire humanity. And, and, and peep that. If that, if that act is the greatest form of injustice ever because Jesus did nothing wrong. And yet he was able to not only just survive, but that was the plot and plan all along. For us, if that can be true, then what does it say about the situations that we experience? If God can do that on the cross. And I love, this is why Jesus, look at what he says in John 10.10. 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they have might, may have life and have it abundantly. Do you hear the echoes of the decree in Esther when he said to completely destroy and kill and plunder all of the Jews. And now here's Jesus saying, that's what the thief comes to do. But I come and I have a bigger and better message than that you may have life abundantly. That's the gospel. Even when Satan is doing his worst in your life, God is doing his best to redeem it. Even when you can't see it, he's still working. No weapon shall form against you, shall prosper. And check this out. Now, this is, now this is, the note takers will, will get this, right? So we saw that first step of injustice is for uh, people to overlook the contributions. Jesus, not only does he not overlook, he says the eye is on the sparrow, so I know he's watching over you. Nothing falls, and he sees us, and he identifies himself with us. And instead of using personal hatred to, uh, to, to a vendetta to pour out into a group of people, Jesus takes conflict that God, an enmity that God had with man, and says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what he does. And then step three, right? When, when Haman uses his power and his influence to, to then turn it into policy, God takes that same situation, uses his power and his influence in Jesus Christ to give us grace. You see that? And then in the fourth step, where all of a sudden policy becomes local practice to wipe everyone out, in, in the case of Jesus Local practice becomes an invitation to say, this is your personal opportunity. This is the locality of it. You get to choose. Do you want to be in relationship with me or not? And the thing that, that, and the last part about that that's so powerful is 
That's not just about personal salvation, but Jesus empowers us to reverse the curse. Last year, after the world watched in, in disbelief and horror at what happened to George Floyd, our lead pastor, James, and us and other churches got together and organized a protest. 5,000 people or so showed up. And it sparked a movement called Pray, March, Act, which still exists and is moving forward to this day. And one of the beautiful things about understanding and unpacking all the dynamics of the gospel is that it's not about a get-out-of-hell-free card, but it's actually about a total, full makeover of our souls and bodies and recognizing that we're not only just called to be saved, but we're called to promote salvation and deliverance for others. Jesus died so that we can have new life in him, but also be free to play by a different playbook. And the last part of that, though, this is where it all comes together. Because the reality is we live in between two moments. The, the, the crucifixion and resurrection where Jesus overcame death and the greatest injustice and when he's returning. And in between time, that time that we live in right now, he calls us, he said, look, here's the play to run. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus showed us what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like and modeled that to us. And then he said, now this is the place to run. Go make earth like heaven. Now, ultimately, we know that that's that job won't be completely finished until he comes back. But that's what we get to do in response. And that's why even the coat drive is saying, you're not alone. You're not out there. Yes, there's brokenness in this world. Yes, people exploit the poor and the marginalized. But yes, we're going to do something about it. Because we're going to use our power and our influence not to be part of the problem, but be part of the solution. And that can all start right now. Because Jesus said, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And so the greatest, one of the greatest injustices that can occur is that we get so deceived about and broken by the sadness of this world that it causes us to stay separated from a holy and righteous God. And here's the reality. If God doesn't, is no respecter of persons. So it's not just the big stuff that a Haman does or a king, a Hezuerus, but if we look in our own lives, we see that there's been aspects of brokenness that we've participated in. I'll speak for myself, injustices that I have done. And the promise that he who the Son sets free is free indeed begins with us. So I want to give us an opportunity to respond to that good news today. If you would stand with me, just where you are. And if you heard this message today and you realize, yo, that gospel is a lot bigger. It's better news than I ever imagined. But you also realize I never actually made a commitment, right? Like I started coming to church and maybe during the pandemic, I started to get some more time to, to prioritize my relationship with God. But I, I haven't really made it a, a priority before. I never actually said, God, you're right. I, I'm a sinner and I need you. And I need Jesus' death and resurrection. I'm just going to say a prayer. 
And it's an invitation and an opportunity to make that commitment with Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the fact that no weapon formed against us shall prosper and that you have a plan for us. And even the hard things in our lives, that you use them for our good. Lord, I believe that you love me. I believe that you saw me from the time I was in my mother's womb and that you died for me so that I can be in relationship with you. I believe you resurrected, promising me the resurrected power in life. And I ask that you come into my life and change me so that I can change, be a part of your process of changing the world. In Jesus' name, amen. If you pray that, we're just going to ask you to text church to 55444. And we just want to be able to give you some resources, encourage you, and let you know that you're not alone as we walk in this faith journey. So as we worship together, you can just be thinking about that and and, and just text church to 55444. And remember that God remembers injustice and not just the big stuff, not just like the the stuff you read in the history books, but even the personal things you've experienced in your life, the personal senses of being abused, the personal sense lights. He sees it all and he will redeem it all. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.